Welcome to Out of Order, a German martial fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, and today we're talking about artificial intelligence and society. The AI revolution is already well underway. How are governments responding, or how should they be, and where do the United States and Europe agree? I'm joined today in the DC studio by Karen Kornblue, director of GMF's new Digital Innovation and Democracy Initiative. Karen's an expert on the intersection of technology, economic policy, and foreign affairs. She has extensive government service. She worked in the Clinton administration for John Kerry in the Senate and was policy director for Barack Obama in the Senate. And she was also U.S. ambassador to the OECD. Thanks for joining me, Karen. I'm glad to be here. And we also have someone with us who's connected to EU policymaking. Michel Siavos is a senior resident fellow at GMF, working with Karen's program. And he's also, potentially more importantly, also senior advisor to EU Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker on AI, robotics, labor market consequences. Michel, thanks for coming. Good morning. So the AI revolution, it's already underway. And there's the sense that big companies are involved, China is involved. And where are we? What's happening with AI? What are the risks? And what should we be worried about? What should we be thinking about? I don't think we need to be worried because actually AI is already with us everywhere. It's in your smartphone. It's basically when you go through the airport at security, the security guards are using AI. When you go to your radiologist, he's already using AI as a way to assist him or her in uh, their work. So it's, it's already a feature of our day-to-day life. I think um, maybe the issue is very much the kind of acceleration that is happening now. Because it's not only AI, it's about AI, robotics, the Internet of Things and blockchain. All these things combined together means that a big change is happening in the economy. And uh, if I can just uh, take maybe one example, if you look at companies, the way they are organized, you see this change between the previous century and this one. At the beginning of the previous century, you had companies like Ford that were completely integrated. Ford was actually also manufacturing the steel they were using to assemble cars. And then at a certain point of time, we had globalization. Globalization meaning that you had in one place, in the developed countries, you had the design the technology, and in another place, you had actually the manufacturing taking place, delocation, in fact. And um, this has happened for many years. Maybe an example of that is IKEA, companies like this. And now we have a a completely different uh, type of globalization because it's actually a distance between services and selling. So you have actually globalization, not as a separation between the design, the technology and the production, but uh, if you want circulation of flows and, and flows of services and data. An example of that is Amazon. An example of that is Alibaba. And these companies, if you want, they are no longer a company in itself. It's more like a marketplace. So this is the kind of change we see happening. Uh, which is driven by artificial intelligence and by robotics. And uh, these changes, I would say it's almost a silent revolution because, in fact, uh, look at your bank. Uh, Look at uh, the way we were booking uh, travels before. All of this now is done online. You do your banking online. We no longer have travel agencies around the corner of our streets. We do that online. 
all these changes have happened and they had big consequences on jobs, they had big consequences on the, the organization of the companies concerned. Karen, it's not a risk, it's an opportunity. What are some of the other questions, though, involved in this opportunity? So I love the way uh, Michelle talked about it as a silent revolution. I think that's very interesting. And I agree. I do think that the fact that decision-making is becoming more and more opaque and more and more automatic is a reason that we can stop and take a look at this. So obviously, we're going to have greater and greater intelligence. The AI, the algorithms are going to allow us to make sense vast amounts of data that we couldn't make sense of before. This promises incredible developments, not only in commerce and manufacturing, as Michelle was talking about, but in healthcare, perhaps in climate and and development assistance and so on. So there's enormous potential here, but there's also a sense that to the extent there is a check now because human beings are looking over the results, making the final decisions that A, they're needed for jobs, and B, that things won't go terribly wrong from an ethical point of view, from a discriminatory point of view. Now, I think some of the populist tensions that we've seen over the last few years show that As this silent revolution has been going on, people are already concerned about a lot of these issues. They're already concerned about the job dislocation. They're already concerned about uh, very big corporate interests, not necessarily acting in values that put people first. But I do think that there's an opportunity here for that to be accelerated. So I think there's enormous opportunity. There's also risk. And I agree that it's a continuation of what's been going on in the past. But this is a good time for us to really take stock and figure out how we want to make this technology have more upside and less downside. That's a perfect transition to what are we doing? We're definitely in the taking stock moment, I would say, as you know, sort of culturally and also governments, there's a lot of talk about this. What's the state of play? Are governments responding? What kind of responses have they so far issued in terms of transition? Maybe, Karen, we'll start with you. What's happening in the U.S.? So, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Um, There are different things folks are focused on. One is the U.S. is worried, are we falling behind in some way? Are we falling behind China? China has been explicit through its Made in China plan that it wants to be self-sufficient by 2025. Then it issued an AI strategy where it said it wanted to be even by 2025 with the U.S., but ahead by 2030. They're making big government investments. Their companies are setting up research centers in Silicon Valley where they're attracting talent. And then, as we know, there's also a lot of cyber theft of trade secrets that's going on and a lot of things that we would not be happy about. They're also raising concerns because they're using technology in ways that we think of as antithetical or that are antithetical to democratic values. It's being used for surveillance and social control. Facial recognition is being sold to other countries uh, for similar uses. So I think I think part of the concern that we have is that we're falling behind and that we need to invest. But the other part of the concern is that, as we were saying before, that there are risks to this technology and that if we're not in the driver's seat in some way, we won't be able to mitigate against using these technologies to really undermine democratic values. The EU Commission has a strategy on AI. Is it a strategy that contains these things about getting ahead of the risks and managing the transition? How how far advanced is the EU Commission on this? Well, in many ways, it is very similar to the US uh, strategy. And if you look, by the way, at uh, the strategies which are uh, released by several countries, 
they globally all are doing the same thing. The question is basically the, the amplitude or the level of ambition. And in Europe, you said, Karen, that uh, you had the impression the US was lagging behind China, or that was the impression. I mean, in Europe, we are lagging behind way, in fact, much more than the US. I think one of the realizations uh, that has uh, been very important in Europe was basically that uh, the main players now on artificial intelligence, they are in the US and they are in China. You have Amazon, you have Google, you have Alibaba, you have Baidu. And where are European companies in this list? Nowhere. If you take the 10 uh, top uh, digital companies in the world, they are U.S. companies and they are Chinese companies. So one of the discussions was about, uh, can we create a European Amazon, as we did uh, create uh, some years ago a European Airbus? I'm not sure it will happen, because probably it's a bit too late. But this is a kind of catch-up game that uh, in Europe we are in. And uh, I think for Europe, let me just point out that uh, Karen spoke about opportunities. It's really important, because it means jobs returning to Europe. In the IT sector, plenty of job creation. Actually, we have a problem because we have a shortage of people um, able to occupy these jobs. And much more important, in traditional industries, which were affected by delocation, take the automobile sector, the textile sector, the chemical sectors, all these sectors are creating jobs again, thanks to artificial intelligence, thanks to robotics, thanks to 3D printing. And this is happening now. The big question for us is, do we have the people who have the skills to occupy these jobs? And the answer is not yet. And this is where we have a problem. We have companies like um, Adidas, which recently has closed a plant manufacturing sneakers in Malaysia and in Vietnam, I think. And they have opened a manufacturing facility in Germany, another one in the US. And they are using 3D printing and robotics. So it's clear before it was using cheap labor. And now they want workers in Germany who have a very high level of skills. Where are they going to find them? So our top issue is actually a question of skills mismatch. So this is interesting. I mean, I'm normally based in Berlin. And so the AI debate I hear is, is as you say, the sort of European saying, where's the, well, especially the German saying, where's the German Facebook? Where's the German Google? And it's a big problem that we don't have a German Google. Does it matter if the AI technology isn't European or in the end isn't American? but we use it better or we employ it better. So it's interesting that you raise that. I was just at the Munich Security Conference and in some of the side events, this question was posed to some of the American tech people. Do we need to have another quote-unquote Sputnik moment? Do we need to think of China racing ahead in AI as the kind of challenge that we faced when Russia launched into space and Eisenhower and then Kennedy said we're going to invest massively in education and science research in order to catch up and land a man on the moon. And there were some who thought that's exactly what we needed. And then there were others who said AI doesn't lend itself to a cold war, that it's more like electricity. It's not necessarily the one who's there the first with the best technology because it's going to be a service. And the question is, how are you going to use AI? So much like cloud technology, are you going to be able to leverage your advantage in AI into other markets? Or are you going to sell it and then others will use it to innovate and create whole new markets and industries and innovations? I think that's a very interesting question. Obviously, it will depend to some degree on 
regulation. But uh, in other ways, it'll depend just on on how the markets evolve. But I think it's a live question. It doesn't have to be an either-or, obviously. You know, we can act as though this is a big emergency and invest, and there's no downside to investing in science and education and and research and so on. And there's no downside to setting up some guardrails and trying to sell those internationally uh, at the same time as, as we should be hoping that people are innovating on the AI. You mentioned regulation. So we have a European and an American here at the table. One of the differences, it seems, between the U.S. approach and the European approach is around regulation, specifically privacy regulation. Um, I'm not sure if the EU is also sort of ahead in other kinds of regulation of data around these new technologies. But the GDPR, it's almost a year old at this point. And the discussions I've heard, both in Europe and outside of Europe, is that this is a big problem for Europe competitively, that they're taking privacy regulation seriously. But where should we be going on this? Is the EU approach a better approach than the U.S. approach? Well, it's interesting. The U.S. since the Second World War has really been a leader in crafting various institutions and agreements that govern not only foreign policy, but also how we trade and deal with technology. So in the dawn of the internet age, we worked with allies in Canada and Europe to come up with some principles for how this new technology could be nurtured and and lead to all kinds of innovation. But since that time, we've really abdicated that leadership. I think part of it was because we thought this new technology was naturally democracy enhancing. And, you know, we were these techno-utopians that thought we didn't have to worry about anything because the technology would always be good. And I think with the scandals of the recent years, we have uh, looked that optimism in the face and are questioning it. But we haven't acted yet. And Europe has, and Europe did enact this GDPR. And I think it's really interesting how the U.S. is watching Europe and learning from Europe. So California adopted a privacy bill after looking at GDPR and saying, gee, if our companies can comply over there, why why don't we have more privacy rights here? But we're still watching. You know, we haven't taken action yet. And GDPR is crafted for a world that existed a couple of years ago. Michelle can talk to this. Uh, Europe is still figuring out how to implement it and where the guardrails are. Meanwhile, there's, as we've discussed, all this new technology coming out. So there's a big challenge here in thinking about what should the framework look like? That's going to involve our working with a lot of stakeholders to look at things like how to protect civil rights, how to make sure that the technology isn't discriminating, and which it can very easily because it's only as good as the data that it's fed. And the data that it's fed is historic. It underrepresents women. It underrepresents uh, racial and ethnic minorities. And it associates people of different ethnicities and gender with different results because that's what happened in the past, in part due to discrimination. We're going to have to look at things like market power, as we discussed before, that comes from data. So there are a whole host of issues. We'll need to bring stakeholders together, develop a new framework, and then we'll need to work with allies, you know, uh, Europe, the U.S., and others will have to work together to try to promote those norms internationally. That won't be easy when we're turning our back on allies now and international agreements. And it won't be easy because some of the other countries that are using this, specifically China, but also Russia, may not be so eager to take our framework, and we have less leverage than we've had in the past. So I think it's a big challenge. I think we, we can we should start working on it. It seems like Europe is ahead. I mean, considering that the big players aren't seated in Europe, but in the regulatory efforts, Europe got out ahead. Well, I think the the important point um, is basically what Karen said about the need to work together. Because whatever we decide in Europe, 
has a huge impact worldwide. So actually, this data protection legislation has an impact for Chinese company, has an impact for Google, even in the US. And so I think I would really make a strong plea for international cooperation. This is absolutely needed, especially we need to talk to those who have different views. And in my view, in that respect, China is clearly the group that uh, the, the countries that we need to be put, uh, that we need to put first on our list. Because I think at the end of the day, we should not deny that there is a dark side to artificial intelligence. There's a problem with data protection, there's a problem with fake news, there's a problem with the way the data sets are constructed, which can be biased. There is a risk also of exclusion, which can come from directly from uh, the use of artificial intelligence. What do you mean by exclusion in that context? Well, because if you have a data set which is biased, it will, in its, uh, the decision that it will prepare, it will automatically reproduce a kind of exclusion that we are trying to fight as humans. And I think the fact that it is automatic may present a risk because humans are accountable directly. And so this is why we have in uh, Europe started to legislate on data protection and we are looking at whether other issues also deserve some kind of uh, regulation. You know that in Europe there is always this kind of balancing game between um, using regulation as a way to control some situations and whether it can harm or help competitiveness. And it's a difficult judgment to make. Uh, we believe that on data protection, we did, um, we took the right decisions, but I think we still need to watch whether there are some negative consequences, for example, in terms of access to data for companies who, um, who want to develop their own artificial intelligence uh, systems. So we are trying to figure out whether in the future we need also specific regulations on discriminations in artificial intelligence. If that's a personal view. I think it is not necessary because we have already fairly substantial regulations on avoiding or fighting discrimination. And in my view, these regulations can be applied to artificial uh, intelligence systems. But that's a debate that needs to take place. And again, I think it's really important that countries which have, I would say, a similar approach or converging approach on these issues should talk together. The Canadians in this respect, I don't know if you have noticed, they have started with a discussion about, uh, they have, first of all, issued the Montreal Declaration, which covers this point, and they are proposing to create an, an organization dealing with artificial intelligence, an organization that would be international and which could be responsible for establishing some standards. I think it's an interesting uh, discussion. I'm not sure if it's something the U.S. would support, but I think at least if there could be a coalition of uh, countries with a similar view, it would help to uh, put the Chinese... Uh, more in the debate at some point. I think you've listed all of them, but I want to distill it. First, the risks, and then we'll get to the opportunities in terms of using it and um, preparing societies and, and the labor markets for it. So if we talk about the risks, if you were to list the top three concerns that demand smart regulation soon in the sphere of AI. So data protection and privacy might be one. If you had to say two others in the list, what are the top three things where we really need regulation to start monitoring this now? I would say maybe first uh, exclusion, but there, as I said, we have legislation on fighting discrimination which could be used. The question mark is, do we need speci something specific on uh, this? And then the other issue is fake news or the distortion 
the use of artificial intelligence to create uh, false information, to manipulate elections. I think for me that would be a, a second topic on which perhaps legislation could be necessary. The question is also the question of liability and who is responsible, which actually is very tricky. So do you consider that uh, because fake news have been um, actually released uh, through Facebook, Facebook should be liable or responsible for this? Because at the end of the day, it's not only a question of uh, saying this is forbidden. The main question is actually who is responsible for correcting the issue. And this is where I believe the debate is far from uh, concluded. I agree. Figuring out who's responsible is going to be really complicated, even in the bias issue, if it leads to discrimination. Is it the inventor of the technology? Is it the user of the technology? Uh, So that's uh, an important issue. Also, this question of market power, that if I control the AI technology, do I get everything? Do I get all the marbles? I think that's going to be really interesting. We're going to need some legal clarity on how competition policy works out in the future. But I want to put another issue on the table, which is not necessarily regulatory, but a question of expertise. Our government agencies just don't have the manpower and the expertise to apply even current law to this new technology. And it's incredibly complicated because it's very hard to see the intent because what these processes do is they learn from each other and they iterate. So it's not a question of somebody sat there and programmed it wrong. learns. And you can only figure out that it's discriminating or leaving people out at the end of the process and by interrogating it with probably other AI systems. And we just don't pay enough and we don't have enough flexible hiring rules to have the expertise in our government agencies that we need to even look at this. So I think that's a major issue. And then we need standards for how is this stuff going to be used? How are people going to evaluate it in government, in civil society, in academia, you know, what kind of experiments are going to be allowed with some of this new technology? And then, of course, in companies. So in companies now, even in the U.S. where we don't have a general privacy law, there are emerging standards about how you deal with privacy and that you have to have a chief privacy officer and how long you keep the data and what kind of security you put on it. We need to have that kind of standard setting conversation as well. For me, the important point is actually to make sure that artificial intelligence is used in a way which is good for humans. What we should not have in mind is actually to curb the use of AI or to control it or to stop it. I think that would make no sense. Um, Because I think we should even realize that even imperfect, artificial intelligence is a huge improvement. Think about autonomous vehicles. Um, I read in the press, uh, like you, that there was this incident, I don't know in which state it was, Uh, where there was an accident, uh, where artificial intelligence was responsible for, for, for the accident. And then let's all remember that at the same time, in the US, you have 37 or 35,000 people who die in car accidents every year. So in any event, if artificial intelligence makes a small mistake, we are saving a lot of human lives every year. And it's like for decisions. We all say we want to understand our artificial intelligence rich decision. So if you ask a loan from your bank, if the loan is decided through uh, artificial intelligence, you want to know how the decision is made. I think it's fair and you need this explanation. But let's all remember that decisions made by humans are not often explained. And actually, sometimes they are. we are even ourselves unable to explain our own decisions. So artificial intelligence represents a huge improvement on, uh, on this kind of situation. So I just want to say that it's really important not to give this impression that we are going to stop, control, or curb the use of artificial intelligence. I think we have to make it useful for humans, but it's not a question about stopping it. 
That sounds like a good spot. And you also mentioned decision-making and maybe building capacity in government or wherever for people to understand how artificial intelligence is making the decisions it's making, which is a transition sort of to what we need to do to make this new technology work better, not only for humans, but for our democratic societies. You're working on a report right now, Michelle, that talks about labor market disruption. And there's a statistic in there that different experts have different opinions, but somewhere between 14 and 47 percent of jobs might be displaced by automation. Artificial intelligence plus robotics and some other things. There have been disruptions in the past. The question is, what should we be doing now to prepare ourselves, to prepare our societies for this new market, for this new technology, and how much of it are we doing? What is really a bit scary about uh, these uh, statistics, it's between 14% and 47%, which means that uh, the experts actually do not know what is going to happen, <laughs> to be very <laughs> honest. Um, the only thing we know is that there will be a, a very significant disruption. And uh, if you look at another statistics, is the fact that if you take uh, 90% of the jobs today, imply some digital competencies, 90%. And so it means that uh, you have to have digital skills. But for me, and uh, I took the example earlier of these plants moving from Vietnam or Malaysia, going back to Germany, and you need skilled workers in Germany. The problem is basically, we have a problem in Europe to find these workers. And uh, even in countries, take Greece or Spain, where you have very high unemployment, they actually have at the same time a shortage of people to work in some sectors, including the IT sector. So there's evidence of a skills mismatch. So for me, the main question is a question of education. This is where we should put the top priority. In a way, we need a revolution of the education system because instead of putting the focus on knowledge and facts, you need actually to put much more focus on what is called soft skills because this is what machines are not going to do. Creativity, problem solving to an extent, creative uh, thinking, all these things uh, which are called uh, soft skills are not really something which is a priority in the secondary education system or university. So this is where you need to put the focus and it means probably a big change in the organization of the education system. Likewise, frankly, computer science is not something which is prominent enough in secondary school. You have a lot of programs which are about coding, but coding is not so much the issue. If, as a citizen, you want to understand how artificial intelligence makes decisions which concerns you, you need to understand what machine learning is, how it works, what is a data set. And so I think it's really important to change the focus of the education system and to put much more emphasis on these soft skills and on computer science. And then my other point, if I may, on education, the whole organization of education, especially university, is very strange because you go to university for five to seven years in Europe sometimes, and then when you reach these seven years, most of what you have learned in the first year is already outdated or obsolete. So what do you do? And then in your career now, more and more, you will have big transitions that you will have to face. So I think we need to completely change the organization. I would say you need to have a, a shorter initial period, and then you need a system whereby every three years, every five years, you go back to university in order to update your skills. I'm saying that knowing that it's a bit provocative, that it's a huge change, but I mean this whole sequence where we go to school, then we work, then we retire, I think that's over. We are facing a completely different system, and I think our education system 
is not aligned to this uh, change. One, one of the things that I thought was really interesting uh, when I started looking into this Sputnik program after it was raised in the in Munich is that as part of the Sputnik program, the U.S. invested in putting physics education in high schools and teaching foreign languages. So a similar kind of approach to what uh, Michelle is talking about, let's learn new things that are appropriate to the challenge in front of us. I want to raise two issues that don't seem like they're completely relevant to AI and technology. One of them is social insurance. So far, the way the technology has been developing over the last decades is in a winner-take-all fashion where a lot of risk is put onto individual families and a lot of the gains are accrued to a few companies and a few individuals. Um, we're going to need a system that's really different from the old system in the U.S. where you got health care and a pension through your job. We're going to be changing jobs all the time. Some people aren't going to have a job at the moment because they're going from one disruptive experience to another. So we're going to need to have some basic social insurance programs that reach everybody and so that every family has things like health insurance and retirement security and the ability to put their kids in college and the ability to take care of small children. And that's going to take thinking about the whole revenue situation when we're in a winner-take-all society with a lot of risk to share. And we haven't had that conversation. That That's going to take a real debate. I think we're just starting to. And the other thing that's really related to that is um, another kind of job that the technology can't do is caretaking jobs. You know, taking care of the elderly, taking care of young children. Uh, and these are things that don't pay very much. So we're going to need to think about if we want to employ people, we want to give them jobs that the machines can't take. How are we going to fund the, the caretaking industry and uh, make those into quality jobs that are good jobs and and that also take care of some of the needs that we have in society, especially with the aging population. I think I agree very much with Karen uh, when she says that we need a change in the way social protection is organized. And it's the same in Europe because uh, our whole system is actually linked to jobs. And you, you need to detach it from jobs and attach it to the person itself. Because this is a person who will need to go into exactly. these career transitions and he or she needs the protection attached to him or her. And you're not going to get people taking risks and starting new companies if uh, the only way they can have health insurance for their family is by staying in their old job. So if you want, even if what you want to do is just incentivize risk-taking, you're going to need to make the, the change that Michelle just described. Incentivize risk-taking and learning, as you were talking about, Michelle. I think this is a good place to end because we have a sort of shocking agreement between the Europeans and the Americans about a new kind of social welfare system, which is a surprising place to end an AI podcast, but a positive one, I think, in terms of having actually very similar ideas about where a lot of this stuff needs to go. Now we just have to see that we make it happen. So, Karen, Michelle, thank you very much for uh, coming and talk to us about these things, and uh, we'll probably have you back to talk about other tech disruptions in the future. Thanks, Thanks Rachel. Much, Rachel. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant and me, Sydney Simon. The hosts are Peter Sparding and Rachel Tausenfreund. And a special thanks to Albin Fauchon and Marie Lowell for production assistance.